Okay, uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this Retin UK webinar. This is one of a series of webinars we are hosting and we'll be delivering at least one uh, on a different topic each month. We are really pleased to have with us today, Michael Gilhooley. Uh, Michael is a clinical lecturer in the Department of Genetics at University College London, uh, the Institute of Ophthalmology and at Moorfields Eye Hospital as well. Uh, his research interests include the development of uh, novel therapies for inherited retinal degenerations, um, so optogenetics, which is what we're here to hear about this evening, uh, and inherited optic neuropathies. Uh, Michael will introduce the technique of uh, optogenetics um, and its potential for development into a treatment for IRDs. We're also joined this evening by Kate Arkell, our research development manager, who will be collecting questions throughout the presentation. So there are a couple of ways that you can ask questions this evening. Um, you can either type them into the Q&A box, um, and you'll find that at the bottom of your screens. These questions will be asked by the team on your behalf. Alternatively, you can raise your hand. If you're on a computer, you can use the Alt and Y key if you're on a Windows computer or Option and Y if you're using a Mac. Um, we'll then be able to ask you to unmute your microphone um, and you can ask the question in person. So please do leave your questions throughout the presentation. Um, we'll have um, as many of them answered as we possibly can at the end of the uh, presentation this evening. If we're not able to get to your question, um, then we will endeavor, endeavor to get those to you, uh, the answer to those over the next couple of weeks. So thank you once again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce Michael. Evening, everyone. Uh, I'll just share my screen uh, and get started. Right, so uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, uh, Matthew Carr and everyone at, at Retina UK for, for asking, asking me to speak this evening. Uh, my name is Michael Gilhooley, and I'm uh, a clinical lecturer in ophthalmology at University College London and Moorfields Eye Hospital. But as you can probably guess, I'm not originally a, an EastEnder. I'm from, from Ayrshire, but I've been down south for, for many years working uh, at Moorfields. A bit about my, my background, I started as a junior doctor in, in Glasgow uh, and moved to train as an ophthalmologist in London. Uh, but around five years ago, I had a change of direction and made the move up to Oxford to join uh, Professor Down's team at the Oxford Eye Hospital for a period of, of research. And in that time up at Oxford, uh, I specialised in uh, the new technique of, of optogenetics. I've since back moved, moved back down to UCL and to Moorfields as a clinical lecturer. And this means that I spend 50% uh, of my time in the eye clinic, the NHS genetics clinic, uh, seeing patients with inherited retinal degeneration and uh, uh, inherited optic neuropathy. And the other half of my time in the university in the labs, researching and teaching new ophthalmologists. <clears throat> So in structuring this talk uh, this evening, I thought it might be useful to briefly touch again on what actually happens to the eye during the inherited retinal degenerations, uh, things like retinitis pigmentosa, and how this can offer opportunities for new treatments. We'll touch on the concept of surviving cells or survivor cells during uh, retinal degenerations. And then I hope to tell you a little bit of, of the story of optogenetics. <clears throat> what is it? Where did it come from? And, and why is it important? But more importantly, given the recent news of the last few, few months, how do we deliver this as a technique into an eye as a potential uh, treatment? 
And finally, we'll have a look at some of the questions that still need to be answered in the lab uh, and the research clinic before we move this technique on into patients as a, as a more routine treatment. So as I mentioned, first of all, I thought it'd be useful to recap briefly what happens to an eye when retinal degeneration occurs and some of the opportunities this process gives us to develop uh, new therapies. As you remember, in these diseases, a mutation or coding or even a spelling mistake in a gene leads to the death of the photoreceptor cells. These are also called the rods and cones uh, in the back of the eye. And these are the, the, the cells in the retina that actually convert light that falls onto them into electrical nerve impulses that can be understood by our, our brain and actually allow us to, to see the light that comes into the eye. Now, rods and cones are essential to our ability to see. Uh, they are highly specialised cells that turn light into something our brains can understand as electrical signals. <clears throat> And targeting these cells, and particularly those cells that support them and surround them, has been highly effective so far in the search for new treatments for inherited retinal generations. The example in point is the drug Luxterna, now available in the NHS, which works by supplying a good copy of the RPE65 gene, uh, that's a copy without mutation or spelling mistake, to the RPE cells that support these photoreceptors and so prevent their death in a particular kind of retinitis pigmentosa or Leber's congenital amaurosis, where the gene involved is RP65. And this therapy and, and several others uh, very much like it that are in development uh, have been termed gene replacement therapies. What they do is they, they replace the faulty genes with a, with a good copy. <clears throat> And these have a great promise for the specific inherited retinal generations or the specific genes that they aim to treat. But the scale of this challenge becomes apparent when we look at the, the pie chart on the, the right hand side of this slide. This large chart is split into to lots of little slices and each slice represents a single gene that causes an inherited retinal generation. And as you may be able to see, there are quite a lot of them. And in fact, as more and more discovered, we're getting up to around nearly 300 genes uh, that can are implicated in causing inherited retinal generations. And this approach of gene replacement therapies would require a different drug to be developed for each of those mutated genes, which is a challenge, but something that may be, may be possible. But what we must also take into account is that the largest slice of this pie, at around 30%, is labelled here unknown mutation causing retinitis pigmentosa. So even on a good day, if everyone with an inherited retinal generation came to the clinic and underwent genetic testing, there would still be perhaps up to one in three people or so, where with our current knowledge at the minute, we couldn't yet give those patients a, a, an idea of which exact gene was causing their condition. We couldn't give them a molecular diagnosis. And this is one of the, the drawbacks of, of traditional gene replacement therapies, is that if we don't know the genetic problem, we don't know which gene it is that's causing the inherited retinal degeneration, we can't construct a genetic solution to treat those patients immediately. Therefore, there's quite a large unmet need uh, for an alternative therapeutic approach, which could be used regardless of what the causative gene is, or even for patients where that gene isn't actually known, where we, our, our diagnostic abilities haven't quite caught up with, with where things are. 
And this is where techniques that are centered on survivor cell stimulation have, have the best and greatest potential. <clears throat> so I often find analogies are helpful in describing complex diseases such as inherited retinal degenerations. And one of the favorite analogies of the ophthalmologist is to compare the whole visual system uh, to how we record films. So in that analogy, the, the eye acts like a camera, lens and, and film, and an optic nerve, which acts the cable connecting the camera to the video recorder that is your, your brain's visual centers. <clears throat> and in this analogy, the retina is often described as the, the film in the camera. The lens focuses the picture that comes into the eye onto the, the retina, the lining of the back of the eye, and uh, the picture's developed in the retina. <clears throat> and this is good to point, but it leaves out a particularly important part of this system that's actually uh, central when we consider treatment approaches to the inherited retinal degenerations. <clears throat> the retina actually does much more than simply convert light signals into electricity develop pictures. Um, there is also a huge amount of processing machinery actually within the retina that begins to extract interesting information from what we see. For example, before the, uh, uh, the nerve impulses have left your eye within the retina, it, the, bigger, it, the interesting information such as the edge of tables or steps, uh, movement in a picture and, and where different colors are in a picture are already extracted from the uh, from the image before this gets anywhere near the, the brain where it's traditionally thought all this processing may have occurred. And why this is important comes when we consider the inherited trip generations. As we've touched on, in these diseases, the mutation or coding mistake in the genes leads to the death of the photoreceptor cells, the rods and cones. And those are the cells that actually do the converting from lights to nerve impulses. But what is not lost in these conditions in the inherited retinal generation is the so-called neural retina. And these are the processing cells that actually make up about a, about a third of the thickness of the retina that are unable to sense light in their own right. What they do is they process the electrical signals that come from those rods and cone cells before passing them on uh, down the optic nerve to the brain. And it's these surviving processing cells that are known as the survivor cells or surviving cells in the IRDs. And as I said, these useful cells remain relatively intact, relatively unaffected by the disease process of inherited retinal degeneration. However, as they have no ability in themselves to sense light, but only process those electrical signals from the now defunct rods and cones, a patient with an inherited retinal degeneration generally loses their vision. However, if we were to artificially generate electric electronic stimulation of these cells, then we might be able to restore some of that visual perception. And indeed, this is exactly how the retinal uh, electric chip uh, prosthesis that has been used in clinic already, uh, that's how it works. By stimulating these surviving cells with electricity via arrays of electrodes implanted on the retina in response to a computer-controlled camera, a degree of visual perception can be restored. However, in practice, these chips have been limited in their success for a few reasons. The first is that they're, they're, by their very nature, they're, they're artificial, they're made of plastic and, uh, and metal, and they don't appear to last very well uh, within, the, the, uh, within the eye, at most a few years. 
and they're limited in how close the electrodes, uh, the metal electrodes can be placed together, uh, and therefore they're limited in the resolution that they can provide. Optogenetics, however, could provide an alternative method to stimulate these surviving cells. <clears throat> so what is optogenetics? So in short, optogenetics is the process of inserting genes into individual cells to make them sensitive to light when they would not normally be sensitive to light. However, there is of course a bit of a story here and it starts in a pond. So green algae uh, are very simple creatures that live in ponds and sometimes in the sea and they're single celled organisms, um, but they have a very useful trick as these uh, single cells uh, gain most of their energy from light, they've evolved to be able to sense where the sunshine is, so where the, the, the brightest part of the pond is, and swim towards that light. So in a way, why they, they, they don't see in the same way as an animal does, they, they, these creatures do have some form of sight. They're able to move towards a brighter patch of the, the pond where they have more energy and are, and are able to uh, do better as, they, as they're in the, the sunshine rather than the shade. However, unlike humans, where, as we've seen from that pie chart, literally hundreds of genes and proteins are involved in the process of, of sight, Professor Nagel, whose pictures here on the left of the, side, the, 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 the screen here, is a, a scientist who's, who's quite passionate about pond algae, uh, and, and that was his, his specialism. Uh, and he actually discovered that this process of, of sight in inverted commas, this ability to convert uh, light signals into uh, an electrical state in the cell that the, the cell can understand and use in these algae is performed by a single gene. So rather than the hundreds of genes in a human or an animal, there's only one gene involved in, in the algae. And this gene is called channel rhodopsin. And there's a picture of the, the channel rhodopsin protein in the middle of the slide as well. Uh, and what this, this protein does is when uh, an amount of light hits, it lands on it, it alters the electrical state of the cell in which it's expressed. Now, Professor Nagel is, is not an ophthalmologist or a vision researcher at all. Uh, nor was his, his close collaborator, Professor Dieseroth, whose his pictures on the right-hand side of the, the screen. He was actually a, a psychiatrist, a psychiatry researcher, who first noticed the potential of this single gene to alter the electrical status of cells. And he was able to insert the algae gene, the chanrodopsin, into brain cells in his laboratory uh, and use this to control their electrical uh, state, which is an important technique in brain research, by either keeping them in the light or in the cupboard in the dark. And the technique became quickly established in, in neurology and psychiatry research, but it took a few years more to work its way into the ophthalmology lab. Where you can imagine having the ability to control the electrical states of cells in response to light can be very important. And if we think back to our survivor cells in the inherited retinal degenerations, for instance, if we could control the electrical state of those cells in response to light, we could perhaps replace some of the function of the lost rods and cones and restore some light sensitivity, a bit like the, the retinal chip was doing. However, until recently, there was no real practical way to introduce uh, those algal genes safely into the cells of a human, of a living animal. <clears throat> 
that changed quite a bit with the, the, the first generation of gene therapies, those gene replacement therapies, such as Luxturna, which is now, now available in the clinic, and they may provide an answer. These uh, new medicines are essentially harmless uh, viruses which have had their own genes uh, removed and replaced with that good copy of the IRD-causing gene, in the case of Luxturna, the RP65. But this same technique uh, could be used to deliver light-sensitive uh, genes, such as chamarodopsin, rather than replacing faulty genes, and bypassing that need to have a detailed knowledge of the gene that's, that's at fault. And this is exactly what we and other groups around the world have been doing in the lab, using these adeno-associated viruses that we know are already relatively safe for human use, and using them to deliver chamrodopsin and other light sensing genes to surviving cells in retina eh, with inherited retinal generations. And at present, eh, this technique is being extensively trialled in, in mice mainly. And la but last month we did have the first report in humans, which we'll touch on a little bit later in the talk. And if we consider that the inherited retinal generations are actually much more common in mice than they are in humans, around 20% of, of mice uh, have some form of inherited retinal generation. But mice, like dogs and, and other animals, are probably less visual than, than humans are, and they rely much less on their vision. So you'd probably be quite hard pushed to tell uh, an IRD mouse family from a sighted one on the behaviour alone. However, when we perform electrodiagnostic tests, similar to those used in humans when we're investigating retinal disease, we can see the differences, uh, the, the differences that are much more marked uh, in these mice. On the left-hand side of the screen, we have uh, uh, a mouse from a family with inherited retinal degeneration, and we can see that uh, in response to a bright flash of light, all of the recordings are essentially flat lines. There's no uh, response at all to this very bright light that's, that's shown at the mouse, and the mouse just gets on about his, his business. However, the same mouse, eight weeks after uh, treatment with an injection of that adeno-associated virus uh, that causes uh, production of the chamarodopsin protein within uh, the survivor cells of that mouse's retina, and we can see the same recordings taken from that retina, uh, to the same flash of light, rather than lots of flat lines, we now have multiple layers of the retina where there are spikes and, and, and responses to the light that's been, that's been seen. So we've had a, a mouse there that had essentially lost all of his vision uh, that has uh, had a, a degree of this light sensitivity restored uh, following this injection, which for me was, was really quite, quite exciting. And what's been even more exciting recently over the last couple of years is the increasing number of chamarodopsins that have been discovered in different single cell species, mostly algae and other microbes, um, and also uh, the number of artificially modified chamarodopsins that have been developed. So with genetic engineering, uh, the basic chamarodopsin genes can be altered slightly. And this has given us a, a wide selection of, of, of genes that we can use, each with slightly different properties. Some are perhaps more sensitive to different colours of light. Others have varying degrees of absolute sensitivity that they're more sensitive to dim lights or to, to brighter lights. And as we'll see later on, some chamarodopsins require really quite, very quite bright lights to be activated well beyond what may be encountered in a normal patient environment. 
More recently, however, some familiar genes have been found in the human retina that have a, been discovered to be able to act as optogenetic tools. That is, when they're expressed in cells outside of their usual homes, uh, they can also alter the electrical state of those cells, like tranrhodopsin can when it's introduced into cells where it's not usually found. And these genes can include things such as rhodopsin, which is usually found in rod cells, and melanopsin, which is usually found in the, the ganglion cells of the retina. And these two uh, have the great advantage of a channel adoption that they have natural human proteins, removing some of the potential risk of immune reactions in expressing algae proteins in the, the human eye. <clears throat> and it's this increasing diversity of optogenetic tools that's of particular interest to me. We now have a wide choice of, of tools, of genes and proteins that react to light in, in, in quite different ways. For example, I've put five of my recordings on the, the left-hand side of this screen, each of these from an individual cell that's been treated with a, a different optogenetic tool in response to the same pulse of light. The two on the left uh, have uh, been treated with a variant of that algae channelodopsin, and the three in the, so the two on the left and the three on the right have had uh, been treated with human melanopsin, um, each targeted to a different type of surviving cell within the retina. And as you can see, the electrical responses to the same flash of light uh, vary quite a lot depending on which tool is used and what cell it's targeted towards. Which gives us two real questions that we kind of need to answer in the laboratory before we move into the clinic. Which of these tools, this huge number of different options we have, which is going to be the best for, for treating patients? But also, what, where's the best place to, to target this? Which type of surviving cell is going to be the best one for us to target in, in humans? And while we've been working on trying to answer these, these two questions, it's, I feel it's becoming increasingly apparent that there may not be a single combination of, of, that is optimum for all circumstances. For example, a high sensitivity tool may be useful for seeing in low light conditions, but a tool that has a faster reaction speeds may be more important to detect motion. Therefore, in the longer term, there may be an advantage to targeting different genes to different types of survivor cells within the retina in an attempt to recreate some of the, the huge diversity of responses that we find in the neural retina, both in, in, a, in a healthy neural retina and hopefully give some, the patient a, a more realistic visual experience. And I make mention of some of these questions, particularly as an illustration just of how much work is going on and, and really still needs to be done in, in the lab. Um, however, earlier this year, we had some really quite encouraging news regarding the use of this technique in, in humans. <clears throat> and that was that we had actually the first report of, of the technique of optogenetics being used in a human back in, in May. Of course, the, the BBC News uh, take might have been slightly more dramatic with algae proteins partially restoring man's sight than perhaps the more measured uh, article title in, in Nature Medicine, which was the actual, the scientific article that was published. And it says partial recovery of visual function in a blind patient after optogenetic therapy. And while I was hugely excited by this report, I, I, we do need to inject some caution as we always have to do in science. The main reason is that we, we don't have uh, that much information about the, 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 the particular study. Um, this article describes actually the experience of a, a single patient in, in France with an retinal generation who had very poor vision and was treated with optogenetic therapy as part of a safety trial. 
So we bear that in mind. Although this is the first time this has been reported, which is hugely exciting, it's still only one patient. So we're still eagerly awaiting the, the, the reports of the, the other patients that were treated in that, that, that study. Now, the study was entitled uh, Pioneer, and it uh, recruited 15 people uh, between three places, uh, France, uh, the UK, Moorfields and uh, America. And each of these people that were recruited into the study had an advanced inherited retinal degeneration uh, with very poor vision. The, 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 the best vision we could have would be perception of light. And these 15 patients were given an intravitreal eye injection of a new drug that was called uh, GS030-DP. So I wonder if they might rename the drug if it does come to being used in, in, in the clinic, because I find it a bit of a mouthful. Uh, and they treated these patients with different doses. The main aim of this study is really to establish that the drug is safe, uh, that it doesn't cause any untoward reactions, and also to work out what the, the, the optimum dose is. And GS030 is a, indeed light flux donor that's already licensed for LCA and adeno-associated virus, uh, but it contains a modified channel adopted gene rather than a replacement gene. And the gene it contains is something called Crimson R, uh, uh, which is a kind of channel adoption from a slightly different type of algae. Uh, uh, and it's called Crimson because it, it's more sensitive to red light than the green light that's preferred by the, the pond algae, because the ponds are usually green, I'd imagine. So this drug uh, would enter the eye by the injection and introduce copy of this Crimson R uh, gene into the survivor cells of the patient's uh, degenerate retina, with the aim of making those surviving cells sensitive to light in their own light in their own rights. Uh, and in this study, demonstrating the safety was particularly important given, as we've touched on before, that, that crimson or channel rhodopsin is, uh, is not a human protein, it's not a mammal protein, it comes from a, a, an algae which is very distant from, from humans, and there's a chance that the, immune, the, the, the patient's immune system could recognise this protein as not being, a, not being part of them and begin to attack it. However, the secondary endpoint uh, in, in this study was to demonstrate the efficacy. Did this treatment actually work? Uh, did it restore some kind of sight to this patient who had, who had very poor vision? <clears throat> and the choice of the, the Crimson R variant for Tyrodopsin was particularly useful here when we consider the point of the study, which was to, to work out the, the safety side of things. One of the disadvantages of chamadoxin is that it's one of those, prote those proteins that requires very, very bright lights to be activated. Um, and in planning this early trial, this disadvantage was kind of turned on its head. Uh, and they argued that if there were to be a, a safety problem with the treatment, uh, the, fact, the, the fact that the, the, the crimson R would require very bright lights to be activated could be protective. Essentially, the patient would need to stay, stay away from very bright lights, which hopefully would all do anyway, in order, uh, it, that's all they'd need to do to stop the charmodopsin being active. This did, however, mean that special amplifying goggles had to be worn during the trial. So these used a computer and a camera to reproduce the outward scene that the patient could see, but amplified the brightness many, many fold. Uh, so I don't think Think they were particularly comfortable to wear and perhaps slightly cumbersome, but useful in this study, uh, given it's the very first time this kind of treatment's been used in a, in, in a human. Uh, uh, and we'd hope perhaps in, in future trials, we would perhaps use a, a tool that has a, a higher sensitivity, needs a much uh, less bright lights to be activated so that we wouldn't need these, these goggles. 
And why the article does not report in detail the efficacy data or the safety data for all the 15 patients, it's, it's really only from this, this one gentleman from France, uh, we assume uh, that they're doing that because they're putting together an application to have the drug uh, approved, uh, or uh, the efficacy of this, it, the information for this one patient is reported in, in a bit of detail. So following his injection, as part of a, an 18-month program of, of, of testing that went on from his injection for, for 18 months afterwards, three main measurements of his visual function uh, in, in the treated and untreated eye, both with and without his uh, stimulating goggles, were, were made. And these were visually guided tasks. Uh, so his ability to find an object that was put on a table in front of him without any other cues other than his vision, uh, to count and locate beakers on a table, and to perform the same task while connected to an EEG machine, an electroencephalogram. Uh, and this is recording his, his brain waves from the different areas of the brain, uh, with particular in interest in the, the electrodes, the, the, the recording from the back part of the brain, which uh, is most uh, intimately involved in the processing of, of vision and, and how we see. The idea there being that um, to, to prove that the visual information is coming from the eye and arriving in the back part of the brain where it be able to be processed and, and to be able to uh, alter behaviour. <clears throat> but I thought rather than going through graphs and reports from those, those individual things, I thought it might be the easiest way to demonstrate this, I think it's just to observe this gentleman performing the tasks he's been given uh, with the goggles turn, turned on and off. So here, this may be a folly to try and use a video during a lecture, but I, I, I've managed to get hold of a, a video of this, this patient actually a, a, a performing these tasks. Now, as we said, he, he is French, so the, the whole the, the video is in French. There are subtitles there, but I'll, I'll explain what's going on in, in English over as well. But it's, um, a, we'll just start and play that just now. It's interesting, he doesn't see anything. No. Uh, there's a black object in front of him on the table. That's with him, with uh, none of the stimulating goggles on. Uh, he, he's not able to see the, the quite uh, dark black object that's in the white table in front of him. The second uh, video, he has the uh, eye that's not been treated. He only had one eye treated as covered. He's got the treated eye open, uh, the one that's had the injection, and he has those light stimulating goggles on to, to amplify the light signal that's coming into his eye. So this video, he, he's put the goggles on and he, he, he's having a look around the table. It's, there's, there's no audio at this, this point. He's just fiddling with the glasses for the first few seconds. <clears throat> Here's that here, I've got something. vibration <coughs> It's, uh, it's not the edge of the table, but there's something that, that, that's uh, vibrating or shimmering. He's reaching out his hand and he grabs the object. So, as you can see, that the, the level of vision that's returned to this gentleman, it, it's not photographic, he's not able to use it. It's not giving him a, a complete restoration of his, his vision, but this is a gentleman who before was was uh, had uh, in that 
eye at it, not the perception of light. You know, he's completely dependent. Uh, he, he couldn't uh, see anything at all. And now he's able to use the sensations that he's getting from, from uh, that treatment to, look, to perform a visual task. He can locate the object on the table. And it's also interesting the way he describes the sensations. They're not as pictures, but as, as, as vibrations. Uh, but he is able to use that information in some way. It's getting to his brain in such a way that he can pick up the object and, and, and see things, which to me, I think is quite impressive, when you, impressive for the first time we've ever used this treatment and given that this gentleman had such poor vision beforehand. So while we've now demonstrated that, that visual responses can be returned in theory in inherited retinal generations, there are several outstanding questions that need, I think, quite a lot of research to, to improve this, this technique and, uh, and really make it as useful as it can be for, for, for people, for patients with low vision. And, and there are those questions we've already touched on, but which is the best tool to use? Chanrodopsin or Crimsonar is, is one option, but there are many others and more and more coming online all the time from algae, eh, animals uh, and artificial ones that are beginning to be created in, in a lab as well. The second question is, where do we target these, eh, these genes, these tools? Do we try and eh, get it into as many of the surviving cells in the retina as possible? Or do we choose a particular type, ganglion cells or bipolar cells, et cetera, that might be more effective if we're more exact in where we, we target the treatment to? And then thirdly, um, what a lot of us are, are waiting quite eagerly for is, is, is the report from this pioneer trial that, that really the safety data, the systematic safety data. These are algae proteins, they are non-human proteins. In theory, there's um, the, the immune system could be activated and, and, and begin to attack these, these, these um, uh, proteins. So this is a very important question that needs to be answered. Are these completely safe? And if they're not, other things we could do to, to mitigate that, that risk as well. And that will, hopefully will come fairly soon with the results of this trial. And then finally, the, the, the usual full clinical trials will be needed. This is hugely impressive uh, uh, data that we've had from, from this publication earlier in the year, but it's still only from one patient uh, with one particular form of inherited retinal degeneration treated with, with one, uh, one option. How does this compare to, to both other patients that have already been treated in that trial, the other 15, and how will it compare to, to a more um, systematic, larger clinical trial? So I hope I've been able to uh, give you a, a brief review of the, the, the disease processes in heritage retinal generation, the concept of the survivor cells as an avenue for potential novel therapies, an introduction to the, the concept and the, the story of optogenetics, uh, and perhaps most importantly, the, the questions that remain in this area as we move with, with some speed really towards its, its use in, in patients. I'd of course be more than happy to take any questions both now or, or if anyone wants to, to drop me an email later on, but most of all, I'll just say thanks for, thanks for listening. See you, man. Michael, thank you so much for that. That was absolutely fantastic. I always, uh look forward to hearing you speak um it really is exciting some of these um potential treatments and things that have come out the research is phenomenal um so we're going to move into um the q a section of the evening um so i know we've had a few questions come in um throughout the presentation but if you've uh, not left your questions so far again there are a couple of ways you can do that uh you can either um 
type your question into the Q&A um, section at the bottom of the screen, uh, or you can uh, raise your hand and we'll um, ask you to unmute so you can ask the question yourself. So just uh, to remind you how you can do that, you can press the Alt and Y key if you're on a Windows computer, Option and Y if you're using a MacBook. Um, and if you're on a tablet, if you go into the reactions um, section, you can then raise your hand from there. Um, so I'm going to hand over to uh, Kate Arkell, our research development manager to uh, do this uh, next session. <clears throat> Thank you, Matt. And thank you very much, Michael. That was really, really interesting. I always think optogenetics, it's such an ingeniously simple idea to, to use these survivor cells <laughs> and the instructions to take over. But actually, your talk was a really good illustration, I think, of how complex it also is. Mm. And we've got all these options and we're really just at the beginning of, of finding out the best way to, to use this amazing tool that we've got yeah. in front of us so um that was really really good and we've had some really good questions uh typed into the q a box so but we welcome more if anybody thinks of some <coughs> so um the the gentleman you showed in that video was obviously at a very advanced stage of, of sight mm -hmm. loss and um somebody's asked is the focus broadening yet so the option genetics is not solely focused on those with complete blindness or near complete blindness but that it could be developed to boost the vision of those whose vision loss isn't quite so advanced so i mean i guess that's perhaps on its own or as an adjunct to another treatment yeah i think that's a, a, a fantastic question and a, i sort of split that into two ways what's actually going on in the research clinic and in the lab what's actually in humans and i, I think at the moment um it, it is going to be for the next few trials i'd imagine in people with very poor vision for, for two reasons that the, the first that that safety aspect that actually we need to make sure this is absolutely safe the one thing we would never want to do is introduce a protein like channel rhodopsin into a retina that's already damaged by the inherited retinal degeneration and then set off the immune system that might actually make things worse now that's uh that that's our question at the minute because we're just going into humans i'd temper that though with where things are in the lab a little bit further back as i mentioned a little bit of what i do with my family of mice that have an IRD and things are obviously a, a few steps ahead there and that's exactly kind of where we're getting to to begin to ask those questions it's been done for a few years now that we've treated mice that have very poor provision um, and some of the questions are beginning to be asked now is at what point would be the best time to actually give this treatment so would it is it best to wait till right till the end till all the natural vision's gone or is it best to intervene at an earlier point? And that's something actually I know in, in Oxford, one of the groups, they're actively looking at that, a, a tree cell mice at different ages to see actually if you could capture it early, uh, does it prevent the mice losing uh, losing sight? But as I say, that in, I need to temper that in humans, it's probably a few years off, but actually that's the direction things are heading in, in, the, in the lab as well. That's really exciting to hear, because I think I think that that question is, is, is thought of by a lot of people actually and do you see it being used alongside perhaps another treatment at the same time as well potentially that uh, in theory yes that's one of the, the the great advantages of it that if, if say you had a you had a molecular diagnosis something rp65 and actually you, you were eligible for that treatment um but all those all those uh, the gene replacement therapies are going to do is is stop the the ongoing process it would reverse what's already yeah. been lost and and that's the 
the long-term hope of something like optogenetics is it might be able to to actually improve the vision there but i would say that that's uh, well down the well down the line but that that's in theory one of the one of the great advantages of optogenetics over over the, the first generation of gene therapies that's really good thank you um i'm just looking through the other questions um well, actually, this is kind of a linked question, I guess. So is it the case that optogenetics won't work as well as gene replacement therapy? Because in optogenetics, you're using cells that aren't photoreceptors or whenever. So yeah, kind of <clears throat> yeah I think there. you're absolutely right. I, I think you're uh, that's one of the, the drawbacks to it. Will you get the same uh, visual experience uh, from something like optogenetics? And I think the answer is in humans we just really don't know and um, we know that our brains are, are plastic they can regenerate and adapt very well to things um but whether they'll be able to adapt to the different signals they, they get back which is why that was very interesting the man that had been treated he, he, he it, there's a slightly longer video there that you can look, look at the, the nature uh, website he doesn't describe what we would understand as vision. You know, he, he doesn't see a black or white thing. What he says is he, he often describes it as a shimmering or an impression that there's something there. And was and in that way, he was able to use the whatever information he's getting to, to, to reach out and hold the object. He was able, he's able to use the information he was getting from his eyes, but he wasn't describing it as a perception in the same way. So that is going to be very interesting as we go forward, as more people are treated, how does it actually feel to be treated with this? Does it feel like your vision's come back or does it feel slightly different, but you've got enough information to navigate around a room or, or recognize people? I think that that is something that we, we just can't do in, in mice. You know, you, you ask a mouse if they can see it, it just, it's not too bothered whether it could see or not, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another question that actually follows on quite well as well in that perhaps about background is that um, this person says they understand that optogenetics is, is gene agnostic. So what we mean by that, it, it can potentially be given to lots of different people, no matter what their underlying genetic fault is. But do you know yet if it will work better for some IRD causing genes than others? And if so, which ones? Um, in terms of hard facts, I can't tell you yes or no. That's not something we've, we've tried. My uh, Estimation would probably be the answer to that would probably be yes. There are some uh, mutations uh, like LCARP65 where the, the genetics is actually very well understood. It's a recessive disease, so all we need to do is replace the gene. There are other genes that where the genetic side of things is actually much more complicated. Those those dominant uh, autosomal dominant uh, diseases where where the mutated gene actually makes toxic elements and and how an optogenetic treatment would um, interact with that will be much more interesting. It could be that in those those some uh, conditions when you have a, a, a something like RP sixty five, it may be that gene replacement is is the best option and is is adequate for a lot of people. Um, uh, and, and that's well and good, um, but uh, it's a long time before we're able to be actually to, to compare those. But I, I would imagine, yeah, that we'll probably at some point get to a point where you'll come to the clinic, you'll have your genetic testing, your genetic diagnosis back, and then you have this this gene. We'd recommend this particular treatment off mm -hmm. the shelf, and that's yeah. Hopefully, in, in twenty years' time, yeah. that, that's what we'll be doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think these forward-looking questions are really just testament mm -hmm. to to the amount of excitement that this this potential has generated. Really, I yeah. think I think our community can really see 
that this has got hope for so many of, yeah. of the community. So um, another good question that actually comes up a lot. Um, would it ever, do you think it'll ever be feasible to have the therapy without the goggles, without the eyewear, as it gets more refined? Yeah. I think that that one I can answer. I think absolutely yes, and I, I think the the reason for those goggles is is the crimson R, the treatment they used in that trial was one of the first um, uh, channel redoxins that had been modified in any way, and that was perhaps actually in the lab, maybe getting on for ten years ago or so now. In those ten years. Uh, the number of tools and the modifications we can make to them have, have advanced hugely. So we have newer uh, versions of that channel adoption that are much, much more sensitive to, to light. So I think that is a question I can easily answer. I think probably with the next, maybe not the next trial, but it, coming forward into humans, that will be something that I think we now have the technology in the lab to, to fix. But actually, I think it, it, it was a good point they made in that paper. One of the reasons they, they chose that less sensitive uh, uh, treatment was if it didn't work or cause damage, they essentially kept this patient away from very bright lights. And when I say very bright lights, the light that comes out of these goggles is kind of like football pitch floodlight. That you, you okay. If you were fully sighted, you'd find it very uncomfortable to, to okay. wear them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that absolutely. I think that that's a... a a blip in terms of this this initial trial. That's really good to hear because I know I mean they look really cumbersome those particular goggles and I think but in reality that that's a lot of weight for somebody to, to yeah, wear. Yeah, it's, it's not a practical weight. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah really great to hear that that's kind of that's within within, within reach. Um, is optogenetics another question we've got about is the number of injections is it a one-off treatment in the same way that say Luxterna would be? Yeah in, in theory yes it, it, it would be a one-off in the same way as Luxterna it's just the, the gene you're replacing is, is not your RP65 it's just you're introducing this channel redox gene in, and your own cells would make it continuously in the same way as the Honestly, as yeah, it's how yeah. long that treatment affects would last. That's a really begin. good question and I think that's something for Luxterna as well we we won't know until people have been treated for 10 or 15 yeah. years how long, it, how long it'll last. In, in theory, at the genetic level, the, the, in theory, it should last for, for a long, long, long time, you know, as long as the cells are alive. But practicalities, we, we, we just don't know, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, another interesting question. Um, what are the impediments to using human photoreceptor proteins rather than ones from algae? I guess... Is it just that the algae ones came first that we understood them? <laughs> yeah, remember this is this is my pet project. Well, uh, yeah, yes. that's the the group in Oxford. If anyone uh, goes to the Oxford Eye Hospital, uh, Professor Hankins and Professor Down is there. Uh, that's really one of the things that they they pioneered in, in Oxford is this uh, melanopsinus especially, which is a human protein that's found in some of the cells in the eye anyway. And they've done a lot of work in uh, using that in the same way as the chanridopsin, introducing it into other cells. Uh, as an alternative and, and the idea there is that there's no argument in terms of the, the immune reaction because it's a, a protein that's there already the immune system won't bother about it and um, it has its own advantages and disadvantages as well it's it's much much more sensitive than channel redoxin you know because it's it's at human light levels you know so it, you'd use it in their your normal vision um, but one of the disadvantages of melanopsin is it's very very slow so its actual, its main function in the eye, in a, in a healthy human eye, 
uh, is to regulate your sleep and wake cycles. Uh, it's not actually involved in sight. So people are often amazed by this, the eye does other things other than see. But one of the most important things is it regulates your circadian rhythms and controls your pupil and other things in the eye. And it's it, melanopsin is developed to be a sort of on-off switch. It's not quick. Uh, it, it, so you don't sort of wake up and fall asleep whenever you turn the lights on and off. But when the sun rises or the sun sets very slowly, uh, that melanopsin is adapted to that change. So that is one of the drawbacks of it. And uh, we may have to make some modifications to speed it up so that you don't end up with just sort of essentially still pictures and then close your eye another still picture that you can actually have motion. It would be like a, a, a film rather than a still picture. But yeah, that's absolutely something that's that's been worked on. But it's just, it's a few years behind Tunnel Redoxin because it was the first one on the scene. So it's, it's moved through the most quickly. Yeah. This is really, I'm learning loads. I don't know about all our attendees, but this is fantastic. Um, somebody, there's two sort of slightly linked questions and that somebody's saying, is it possible to have an appointment to see if my father would benefit from the treatment? Now, I guess this is sort of leads on to the other question, which is who's doing clinical trials? Um, somebody else has said Bionic site and Gensite have both had early successes. I think that was Gensite, wasn't it, that you showed the video from? Yeah. Um, have are there any other companies in the area so I guess what what's going on in terms of um, clinical trials that people could actually potentially access yeah so certainly the, the, the main ones are those Gensite ones and other and, and I think the, the main advice is as always is if you have an inherited treatment generation or have a relative with them make sure you're in the local genetics clinic you, if you'd like to go ahead with molecular testing um, and the, the main site for recruitment in the UK was uh, Moorfields, the, the big genetics clinic uh, in Moorfields in London. Uh, however, they are interlinked with the other genetics clinics within the, the country. So if there is this particular kind of patient they're after for the, the, the trials, that the call will go out to all those, those clinics. Um, but the main gen site's been, been based through the Moorfields Clinical Research Facility. And I think that that's just um, by chance, they were looking for the first UK site and, and uh, we have a link one of the consultants that works in France as well and it is stuff like that so I think they'll expand from from there but the, the bottom line is as always get yourself to a genetics clinic um, molecular diagnosis if it's the right thing for you and once you have that you, you'll be on the databases and pulled into the uh, any clinical trials you'll be offered if, if that's something that's appropriate for for you. Questions has popped into my mind actually with you saying that if people have gone to a clinical genetic diagnosis and they've had a uh, not had a result because mm. the panel hasn't turned up, does that preclude them from from because because optogenetics is kind no, of no these patients so these patients uh, in in this trial were. were some of them, uh, I think they all had a genetic diagnosis because it's a, a scientific trial, but they, um, there's no reason why they would need one. You know, they, they didn't have the same genetic diagnosis, you know, but sure. the diagnosis within that trial, it was just, they had confirmed uh, inherited retinal degeneration. So I think probably in the, the later trials that come on, that'll, be, that'll not be a stringent or a restriction on, on who's recruited, definitely not. Just to, just to clarify, Moorfields isn't recruiting now, that's no, that, that's closed. That 15 patients have been uh, closed, but I uh, I believe Gensite will be moving on if they get approval. So there will be recruitment at some point in the future. When that is, I don't have the, the, the no. as, as yet. Yeah. yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, we try to keep an eye on these things too. So I would just say, 
um, to those people wondering, um, we'll do our best to keep our information up to date. We don't always get told by these companies exactly what's happening, but uh, we do our best. Um, but also more fields. If there's going to be a UK site again, I guess it's going to probably be more fields so people can, I think, register at more fields. Uh, there's a more fields research registry of some description as well, which yeah, there is. Yeah, you can uh, find the uh, the website's fairly terrible, but if it, it's on the, the website, if you look for it in the, the CRF, which is the clinical research facility, uh, the other way to do it is, is speak to your own ophthalmologist and, and, and have them refer you uh, to move. You don't actually physically need to come to the hospital, but just uh, they, 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 they make us aware of Moorfields that you, you exist out wherever you are. But, um, Fantastic. <clears throat> okay, just looking through, we have actually got somebody with their hand up. Um, who is on the phone, Matt, is that, is that just the same process? Excuse me, just one moment. Do I, if <coughs> on the phone, oh. Oh yes, H hello, can, can you hear me? Hello, yeah, yeah I can hear you. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I have a question. Um, would, would um, this kind of research and treatment help um, be beneficial to people who have um, Usher syndrome? Um, in, in, in theory, I'd, I'd, as much as it would be for, for any other inherited regeneration. For, so yeah. absolutely, yeah, it would apply to, to Usher's, um, yeah. Well, that's good, thank you. Thank you for answering my, 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 uh, okay. my question. Um, Thank you very much for, for sticking your hand up and asking. Um, we've got another one that I've just found in the bottom of the, the Q&A box. Um, will people that get this type of treatment still be able, we, we have kind of all sort of answered this, but I still think it's worth just specifically addressing, still be able to get gene correcting treatments later on? Will there be an immunogen, Im, a problem with <coughs> immunogen, you know, response, immune response um, with the AAV vector? <laughs> That's uh, a really good question, and I think I've kind of conflated this a bit. There's kind of two immune issues. One is the the drug itself, the the virus, and one is the the gene or the protein that that virus expresses. And that there's a, a sort of ongoing debate about the the, the virus side of it. Things like Luxturna. If somebody was treated with Luxturna, if we find out in ten or twenty years it only lasts for ten years, will we be able to treat? that patient again with the same treatment with the same virus because once that virus has got into your body if the immune system's caught it the first time it might not uh, cause any reaction but a second dose a bit like your, your booster dose for your your vaccine you know if, if the immune system sees it again it may set off more of a reaction and there's a lot of debate in that in, in all gene therapies about how permanent is what the reaction will be in the longer term the other issue with, with the optogenetics is the actual protein that's going in there. If we're using a, a, a non-human protein, the, the same thing will apply. If, if, if it returns again, will that uh, induce an immune, immune reaction? And that's something we're actually looking at in, in mice, not so much the, the um, virus side of it, but the payload, the, the channel reduction reactions, actually are there particular reactions within the retina and um, that's something we've got a, a colleague who used to work with in, in Oxford's moved back to, to Germany and, and we've done a project there funded by uh, ProRetina Deutschland which is the German equivalent of Retina UK are funding a, a good bit of that research as, as well and we're trying to look to see actually 
are there immune reactions that are specific to the, the channel rhodopsin or the melanopsin independent of the uh, virus? And is it going to be something particularly about optogenetics that is more immunogenic, it causes more problems with the immune system than just straightforward gene therapy like Luxterna? Perfect. Thank you. Um, let me just look through. Um, oh, good question. Um, in addition to optogenetics, what else do you think might be a game changer for IRDs in the coming years? I was going to say optogenetics is my thing, but uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, the thing with optogenetics is it, it's, it's, it has huge potential, but it's still, you know, to be a off the shelf kind of treatment that there's so much science still to do. You know, it, it, channel rhodopsin was only discovered you know, 15 years ago. This is, this is moving at pace, but there's a, a long way to go. I think the gene replacement therapies for, although they won't be applicable to, to everyone with IRD, we've got one in terms of Luxterna, there are others coming up behind it. I, I think in the short to medium term, that's the, the game change that we're already uh, at the beginning of, I think is, is really going to alter things and seeing how they work in the long term, it, it's going to be really fascinating. Um, thank you, Michael. I think um, that is uh, a nice a nice question. Uh, to close on. Somebody's just said a wonderful work and presentation. So thank you very much. Oh, thank for you. That. Thank you everyone for, for listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, is, it has been really, really interesting. And thank you all of you for some really, really good questions there as well, which I, I just think has really helped to, to round it out too. So um, thank you very much. Um, I will just briefly, uh, I think we're bang on, almost bang on eight o'clock. So I'll just briefly hand back to, to Matthew and we'll close up. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Michael. That uh, was fantastic. Those questions were were amazing. Um, so yeah, huge thank you, Michael. Um, we really value your your presentations when you come along and speak to us. Um, and of course, thank you to everybody else who's uh, joined us on the, this evening's webinar. So as mentioned at the beginning of this evening's sessions, we are planning to host at least one webinar each month and details of the next will be available to you shortly. Um, so just a reminder that Retina UK is a registered charity. Uh, we receive no government funding and we rely on our wonderful supporters, such as yourselves, to raise the funds needed to provide the vital services and invest in groundbreaking medical research. So if you are interested in supporting our work to enable us to do more webinars and things like this, um, there are so many ways that you can get involved um, from a sponsored walk, a bake sale at work, um, or just from a, um, a straightforward donation. Um, so please do reach out to a member of our fun friendly fundraising team um, if you wish to support us further. Um, you can do that by emailing them on fundraising at retinauk.org.uk. So just um, following this uh, webinar this evening, we will be sending out an email um, at the beginning part of next week, uh, which will have details of where you can re-watch um, and listen to Michael's presentation and details on how you can book onto our other events. Uh, we'll also be seeking your feedback on the session today. Um, we do value all feedback we get and yours will really help us to develop our webinars and our other services. So once again, thank you ever so much to Michael and thank you to everybody that's joined us this evening. And we uh, wish you a safe evening. Thank you very much. <laughs>